Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. As you've already noticed in the scripture that we read there, um, this morning, today we're going to be looking into one of the most devastating, yet one of the most amazing uh, passages in, in all of scripture and, and events in all of history, really. Um, you know, at this time of the year, Christians uh, focus a lot on the death of Jesus. And, uh, you know, on one end, for those who aren't yet disciples of Jesus or for those um, who didn't grow up in the church, that sort of thing, um, it may seem strange to, for all this focus on the death of Jesus. I mean, we have an entire day coming up this week on the Christian calendar that celebrates Jesus, celebrates, isn't that weird, Jesus's death. We call it Good Friday of all things. Um, we stand and sing songs about Jesus's death. We, we have a symbol of Jesus's death on full display. We have it in our homes. We wear it around our necks. It's, uh, so we can understand maybe that those who don't understand what all this means, uh, to them it might seem a little, a little strange um, to focus on the death of Jesus so much. And if that's you today, if, if you don't quite uh, get it, um, man, welcome. That's okay. If you're watching online, welcome. Uh, and that's okay. We hope by the end of our time together, you will have a better understanding of why we uh, do what we do, why we look at the death of Jesus in this way. Now, for others of us who maybe are disciples of Jesus or who maybe grew up in a church environment or have been longtime followers of Jesus, the opposite of that situation uh, may be true because we can come to see the crucifixion of Jesus as kind of a a mundane, ho-hum sort of thing. And it's because it sounds so familiar to us. We can lose sight of the immensity and the glory of actually what took place uh, there on the cross because we've heard it so much, particularly here, like with Reach Life and gospel-centered environments like this, every, we, everything has to do with this, right? We talk about it all the time. And so for us, we stand sort of in jeopardy to be a little too familiar because we know that human nature tells us that uh, familiarity can breed contempt or uh, disinterest or apathy toward a given thing. And, and in this case, it could be with the crucifixion of Jesus. It can kind of be normal. You know, we say, I, I, I've heard that before. So kind of, so what? We wouldn't maybe not say that out loud, but we might feel like, okay, so what? Um, so if you're taking notes, the first thing I want, to, want you to see is I want us to have a proper perspective on Jesus's crucifixion. And to do so, both the details and the big picture must be kept in view. And by the way, I said if you're, if you're uh, taking notes, you should have a weekly uh, handout that you got when you came in. There's a place on, on the back of there that you can take notes. I know lots of you like to do that. So we try to provide that weekly that has announcements on it and a place for you to take notes as well. So first, we're going to zoom in and kind of see close up of, of what it would have actually been like for Jesus to experience the crucifixion. And I hope in doing so, um, maybe we'll get a, a more clear, more accurate understanding of it. You know, interestingly, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, 
as you've gone through reading the New Testament yourself, the gospel accounts, that's what we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are accounts about the gospel accounts about the good news of Jesus in history. Um, they give more of like a summary of the crucifixion. They don't really go into a lot of detail. In fact, the passage that we just all read together in John chapter 19, notice we only read the end of the chapter, right? Uh, Pastor James preached on the first chapter last week. And in what we just read, again, just one half, the last half of one chapter, it covered uh, Jesus carrying his own cross, being sentenced by the inscription, King of the Jews, over his head, being stripped, having his clothes gambled over, Jesus entrusting Mary to the Apostle John, who was standing there at the foot of the cross with her, Jesus giving up his spirit and choosing to die, Jesus being taken down from the cross, anointed with myrrh and aloes, and buried in a new tomb. All of that in one half of one chapter. So it's kind of it's an overview at best. Um, so many uh, Bible scholars think that the reason that that is, that none of the Gospels really go into a lot of detail, is because sadly, at that time in history, the audience to whom the Gospel writers were writing would have been very familiar with crucifixion. It was a very common practice by the Roman government. It, they had, the, the Roman soldiers had become ex expert executioners in some way. And at the same time, the people who lived in those areas had become very familiar, sadly, with crucifixion. So they wouldn't have needed those details. They knew, they knew the, the truly gory details of, of what it was like. Uh, but we today, thankfully, no doubt, are not that familiar with execution by crucifixion. And that can be, to, in some ways, to our detriment. So I want to read... Uh, an excerpt from a great book called Doctrine by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears. And it helps encapsulate the reality of what Jesus endured there on the cross. Now, I'm going to warn you, it's a few paragraphs. Okay, so, but lean in. Uh, let's follow this together um, because we really do need to understand what Jesus endured. So I'm just going to, I'm going to read some paragraphs to you. The, main, uh, the pain of crucifixion is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. Excruciating means from the cross. The victim was affixed to the cross with either ropes or nails. The pain of crucifixion is due in part to the fact that it is a prolonged and agonizing death by asphyxiation. Crucified people could hang on the cross for anywhere from three to four hours or for as long as nine days, passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggled to breathe while laboring under the weight of their own body. In an effort to end the torment, it was not uncommon for those being crucified to slump on the cross to empty their lungs of air and thereby hasten their death. Further, there are debated archaeological reports that suggest sometimes seats were placed underneath the buttocks of those being crucified to prevent slumping, thereby ensuring a lengthy and most painful death. None of this was done in dignified privacy, but rather in open public places. It would be like nailing a bloodied, naked man above the front entrance to your local mall. Crowds would gather around the victims to mock them as they sweated in the sun, bled, and became incontinent from the pain. As a general rule, it was men who were crucified. Occasionally, a man was crucified at eye level so that passersby 
could look him directly in the eyes as he died and cuss him out and spit on him in mockery. In the rare event of a woman's crucifixion, she was made to face the cross. Not even such a barbarous culture was willing to watch the face of a woman in such excruciating agony. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion, quote, the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens not even speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. The Jews also considered crucifixion the most horrific mode of death, as Deuteronomy 21 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You know what? Jesus endured for us should truly break our hearts. Should truly break our hearts. Now, with that zoomed in, kind of detailed look at the historical and brutal death that Jesus experienced on the cross in view. I want us to zoom out now, right? Remember I said both the details and the big picture are important. I want us to zoom out and take a look at the big picture at some truly profound cosmic level things that took place on that day. I want us to understand and see what Jesus accomplished. Now, to be sure, we're only going to scratch the surface on this, and we only can scratch the surface if we had eternity, I believe. I think we would, we would still not get to the bottom of this thing let alone in our time here together today. But you're probably going to need another sip of coffee uh, during this section. Okay, so, so hang in there, tune, tune in, and, um, but I think it's going to be worth it. There's an illustration coming up on the screen. This is a painting by a man named Salvador Dali. Anybody ever heard of Salvador Dali? Uh, probably seen the persistence of time that he, he painted some other things. Dali, um, well, let's first note how Anglo-Saxon Jesus looks on the cross. Uh, obviously, Dolly missed that one. Um, Jesus uh, was and still is, by the way, a very Middle Eastern Hebrew male. And so uh, Dolly missed that, but don't get hung up on that. Are you going to really miss the, the point here? Um, notice this, this is a very stylized and artistic depiction of the crucifixion. And Dolly's known, those of you who said you're kind of familiar with him, is known for like surreal paintings where sometimes he paints like things that look absurd. Other times, and sometimes at the same time, he paints things that look really weird but have a profound meaning. And that's the case with this painting that you see on the screen. Now, disclaimer, Dolly was not a Christian at all. But I think he got some things right here, uh, even as a non-Christian. Um, you'll, you'll see that the name of this painting is Corpus Hypercubus. Um, and it describes kind of the subject matter of what's going on in the painting. It is um, Jesus being crucified on a floating, unfolded hypercube. Okay, great, fantastic, right? Hypercube is also known as a tesseract. Now, that's not the infinity stone from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A tesseract or a hypercube is a four-dimensional cube. Uh, Go forward, you'll see it coming up here. That's what a four-dimensional cube looks like, and it's meant to describe a cube that is uh, depicting length, width, and height 
three, three dimensions, and a fourth dimension of time. Fourth dimension of time. Next slide. And when you unfold a hypercube, it looks like this. And it looks like a cross. And so Dolly uh, chose to use it as a cross here with Jesus. And when you unfold that four dimensions, you get ten dimensions. And that's as many as physicists and mathematicians think we have right now. And so what Dolly is depicting, you guys, don't, don't miss this because I think he got it. He is showing Jesus suspended between heaven and earth. He is literally the mediator between God and man. He is showing Jesus upon not just a hypercube, which shows his Jesus' dominion over all of uh, space and time, but on an unfolded hypercube that shows in all ten dimensions, Jesus is king. Space, time, eternity. Now, forever, everywhere, at all times, in all people, Jesus is king. So even in Dolly's unregenerate, cloudy way, he saw some things about Jesus. And he got some things about Jesus right. And I want us to see about Jesus now. Dolly got it right in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there's one, me- one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I want us to behold that man today. By placing, again, Jesus on this hypercube, Dolly is recognizing what Jesus says about himself in the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. In all ten dimensions, in all of reality, Jesus is king. So with that, we've seen the zoomed in picture now. Again, we're just scratching the surface. We've seen a a zoomed out picture of truly some things that were taking place on the cross and who Jesus is. I want us to look at this bigger picture view and see what Jesus accomplished. I don't want us to ever lose sight of the truly barbaric details of what Jesus took on our behalf. And I don't want us to lose sight of the big, huge picture of really who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Let us never lose sight of those things. I want us to see now who we are seeing on the cross. But I want us to look at a different aspect that sadly, I don't think Dolly ever understood. And sadly, many of us may never understand, but I hope today, by the time you leave here, you will either understand it anew or understand it afresh because we're going to be focusing on a singular statement by the Lord Jesus from the cross in the passage that we read earlier today. If you have your Bible, it's not coming up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, it's verse 30, where Jesus said, you can see it on the screen, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. When Jesus said, It is finished, he knew exactly what he was saying. And I want us to know what he was saying. He was saying, It, all ages up until now, the point of all these things were now accomplished. The eternal plan of God, making uh, salvation of all humanity to all who will believe available. The prophecies, literally thousands of years of prophecies throughout the Old Testament time period, 
pointing to this time. The pre-incarnate, not visions or deliveries, visitations of God the Son to Abraham that we looked at in the book of Genesis and Abraham's descendants through whom Jesus would later be born through all led up to this. God the Son added full humanity to his full divinity for the purpose of this, for this hour. This is it. Let's go back in time, just a few hours. Flip your, Take a left in your Bibles. Go back to John 17. Remember that Pastor James preached on this passage a while back, but it's only a few hours ago in time uh, as these events unfolded in history. Remember that we, here we see Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking to God the Father, right? We see the Trinity communicating together. One God, one being, three divine persons. And in that conversation, you remember what Jesus said to the Father. Jesus had been teaching his disciples, and John 17 begins like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, what work had the Father given the Son to do? What work had Jesus accomplished? For the answer to that, we need to take a further left and go way back to your Old Testament. Go ahead and do that now. Isaiah chapter 53. This was written literally hundreds, 800, we think, years uh, before the birth of Jesus. You can turn there in your Bibles, but it's going to be coming up on the screen as well. Uh, To our Jewish friends, this is often uh, referred to as uh, the forgotten or the hidden chapter in the book of Isaiah. And you're going to see why. You're going to see why. We're going to read it all. Just drink this in and pay close attention to the details, okay? Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should, we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off 
out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Could anything be more clear? This is speaking about the coming Messiah literally hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And yet so clearly and so obviously is describing Jesus and what He accomplished on the cross in vivid, minute detail. Incredible accuracy. So this, this is what, Isaiah 53 is what Jesus accomplished. He has made intercession for the transgressors. It is finished. This is Jesus in our place. This is what has been accomplished. That phrase, it is finished, uh, that Jesus said from the cross in the original language is tetelestai. It's in, a, in the original Greek language. And it was, um, it was something that was stamped at the end of receipts. When you get a receipt for something, paid, right? Pay your rent, tetelestai. You don't owe rent anymore, right? And it can be translated to be made an end of or to be paid, or it is performed, or it is accomplished, right? Well, what has Jesus made an end of? He's made an end of our sin, man, and the guilt that goes along with our sin. The alienation that we experience between us and God and us and one another has been made an end of. It doesn't have to be anymore. Jesus has provided the solution. What has Jesus paid then? Jesus has paid the price of our redemption. What it truly costs for you and I to be reconciled to God. He satisfies the righteous requirement of judgment from the holy God. Our debt has been paid by Jesus and paid in full. What has Jesus performed? Jesus performed all the requirements of the law. Do you guys realize that Jesus lived a perfect life? Even Pilate? His, the guy who sentenced, sentenced him to death found no guilt in him. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law. God's standard for judgment is this. God judges us by his own character. Think about that for a minute. God is asking you and me to live up to his standard. That means we are all doomed. Truly. Yet Jesus did live up to God's standard. 100% without fail. I have accomplished all that you have given me to do, Jesus says to the Father. I came only to do the will of my Father. I speak only what I've heard from the Father. Jesus fulfilled the, the righteous requirements 
of the law perfectly. I would be hopeless without Jesus living a perfect life. You would be hopeless without Jesus living a perfect life in submission to the Father. The sacrifice for our sins has to be perfect. So that means only Jesus qualifies. There could be no other sacrifice. Your good works do not qualify. My best efforts do not qualify. Only Jesus. When Jesus says, to die," he is announcing to the Father, mission accomplished, Father. Be well pleased, mission accomplished. He's announcing to the powers of darkness, you are defeated. All right, he's announcing to you and I, you can be free. Jesus is saying, to die here. Jesus accomplished the work the Father had given him to do. And like Isaiah 53 says, it is intercession for the transgressors. That, that, that brings up a question, though. Who are the transgressors? Me. I'm a transgressor. Precisely because I haven't lived a perfect life, life like Jesus. Raise your hand if you're perfect. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a transgressor. That's how we'd say in Oakley, transgressor. Right? And if you would have raised your hand, you would have, you would have been a transgressor and woefully deceived. Right? Uh, this same guy, John, who's writing this account of the gospel, says in his first letter to the church, 1 John, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But praise be to God, there's the second verse. The very next verse says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let's put this, this passage here in the larger context. He's not saying if you just confess your sins, you're forgiven. Think about this. Even in a human court of law, which does not uh, meet God's high standard, of his own character, if you walk into a human court of law and you confess to a crime, what happens? You surely don't walk free, right? That is not what happens. If you confess to a crime, you are found guilty and you're put away according to that crime. That's what happens when you confess to something. So that is, uh, John is saying more here. Why why do you um, go away or get judged if you confess to a crime? Because the judge is righteous, as he should be. God, the judge, is indeed righteous. And our crime against the Father, amazingly, can be um, forgiven us because the Father remains righteous and Jesus took the penalty. We walk into the court and say, we're guilty. And Jesus walks into the court and says, I'll pay. John, John makes this very clear in the next chapter over in 1 John Chapter 2, it begins like this. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, anyone who turns to Jesus and confesses their sins, a.k.a. That's what repent means, turn, turns to Jesus and repents of our sin, then Jesus is our propitiation. A propitiation means 
um, is the means by which someone can be pardoned or blessed by God. God can still be consistent with His holy, righteous character because our debt has been paid, paid by Jesus. Jesus the righteous in place of Terry the unrighteous. Jesus the sinless in place of Terry the sinful. That's why God's grace is so amazing, man. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In our place, for our benefit, and all we have to do ourselves is wave the white flag. I surrender. I, I surrender. And accept His grace. Place your faith in Him and what He's done for you. Listen, where else are you going to go for true reconciliation to God? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go to have your debt to God paid in full? Only Jesus. (laughs) Only Jesus. Next question, who else is worthy? Who's worthy of your life the way Jesus is? Let's close with that question. Who's worthy? Who is worthy? I'm going to read something from a textbook that I had a while back. And it's speaking of another one of the books of John from the New Testament, the book of Revelation. He says, all that John saw and wrote in the book we call the Revelation points to one dangerous question. This is a question I'm posing to us today. It may be the most important question ever asked. It may be the most life and destiny-defining question ever asked. It is the question that was asked by the angel before the throne. It is the question that has been asked in one way or form by every thinking person through the ages. The question is, who is worthy? I challenge, he continues in the book, I challenge you to ask yourself, who is worthy of my allegiance? Who is worthy of my affection? Who is worthy of my devotion? Who is worthy of my faith? Who is worthy of my time, my money, my possessions? Who is worthy of my dreams, my hopes, my future? Who deserves my mind, my mouth, my hands, feet, and heart? Who is worthy? Who is worth staying pure for? Who is worth taking time to pray to? Who is worth sharing with friends and strangers? Who is worth trusting completely? Who is worth giving your Sunday mornings to? Who is worth living a life of integrity for? Who is worthy? Who is worthy of going into full-time ministry for? Who is worthy of going to a big city and starting a new church for? Who is worthy of crossing cultures for? Who's worthy? Who is worthy of going to jail for? Who is worth living for? Who else is worth dying for? Who is worth standing to sing to? He he concludes the section by saying, One day, every precinct will, will report. All the votes will be counted. And it will be unanimous. They said with a loud voice in Revelation 5.12, The Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I would add, man, he is worthy to receive my life. Is he worthy to receive yours? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Jesus is worthy. Amen.